Welcome to the Out of the Main Book Club. Sounds like NPR. Yeah. <laughs> Did you bring wine? Uh, I, I will be whiny, if yeah, that's okay. what you mean. All right. Well, good. I have the cheese. Yes. Well, before we get into our book club episode today, I had to, I think I was remiss or we were remiss. February 19th came and went, and we forgot to specifically say what was significant about February 19th. So we should have done this last week. Let's do it this week. That's true. That's true. That was the release of the Page 99 debut album. Ah, yes. Yes, it was. I was talking about the Muppet Show catalog coming to Disney+. Plus. No kidding. Yes, the original oh. Muppet Show. All right, well, there's so, things of importance. and things then there's, to yeah. do now. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's get into our book club, <laughs> which is, uh, of course, Steve Lukather's The Gospel According to Luke, which you've read in part twice now. Correct. Um, so this is going to be interesting. This book came out when? 2019? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like I've gone through the book twice and I've also listened to a bunch of uh, interviews and things. And I'm just trying to assemble. I figured that for the first time, if we're going to do an artist focus, it only makes sense that it is a session guy, right? For I mean, that is the core and essence of Yacht Rock. So yes. and it had and, to be a total guy. And then it had to be either Luke or Jeff Percaro, but... Uh, I think Luke's the guy today. Yeah, and you've read both books, so we may come back right. to the Picaro book. Right. Um, but just to tee this up, I, I was looking at the Amazon write-up, which I'm sure was provided by the publisher, but I love how it starts. Is says, no one explodes... I love it. Explodes. No one explodes one of the longest-held misconceptions of music history better than Steve Lukather and his band Toto. The dominant pop culture sound of the late 1970s and 80s was not, in fact, the smash and sneer of punk but a slick, polished amalgam of rock and R&B that was first staked out on Boz Skaggs' Silk Degrees. Mm. And what I love about that is that, like, that describes Yacht Rock to me in that it's the story that was never told at the time and is now being told decades later and continues to be told. And that's what's so cool about Yacht Rock. You discover this... It's like re-remembering of history because back then this was not the, like it says, the dominant sound. Or or was it, maybe? Hmm. That's a really good question. I hadn't really thought of it that way. I wasn't expecting that kind of question. Yeah. Well, my recollection yeah. was it went from pop to yeah. kind of punk pop to, and then there splintered where there was punk, there was disco, there was R&B, and then heavy metal came along. But this one little window that we focus on was happening at the same time, but sort of like under our noses and we never knew it. But almost all this stuff that we're talking about what you call Yacht Rock, I think I heard on what would have been at the time considered, you know, adult contemporary station or smooth rock, maybe. I mean, right. in Detroit it was WNIC, and that was the, uh, you know, the adult contemporary Kind of what it is today, yeah. yeah. It's, it's the softer side. But, all right, so you've read this book, and I, here's one thing that dawned on me, speaking of the retelling of the story. Like, yeah. I've been getting so into Yacht Rock, the musicians, the history, the origin stories, and I never thought to, like, ask, what was Steve... Like, what was Steve Lukather's origin story? I, uh, I know kind of yeah. what the heart of the story is, but like in this book, do you get a sense for like where he came from, how it started to happen? Give us some of the early days, if you would. Well, there had to be something in the water. I don't. Do I get a ding for that? You must okay. get a ding for that because it's amazing. The uh, in the small area where he grew up, and the high school that he went to, it's amazing. The the other musicians. That, that he hung around with, that he knew. I mean, his he says his first two close friends were Michael Landau mm. and John Pierce, the bass player. Uh, played for Pablo Cruz and later for Hugh Lewis and stuff. Um, but, you know, 
in the neighborhood, of course, were also the Percaros, mm-hmm. you know, and all the people that they hung out with. And um, Jeff Percaro and David Page had a a band early on, well before Total, and they were just like high school kids. And um, they eventually kind of grew this thing. And then when they started getting maybe starting to get sniffs at doing these session things, they sort of handed this off to Steve Percaro, the younger mm-hmm. Percaro brother, and um, Luke there. It was a band called Still Life. That's not a bad name. No. They should have hung on to that. I know. So when they um, handed it off from Jeff and Paige, it, it was Steve Percaro, Michael Landau, John Pierce, and Steve Lukather in a band together in high school. Wow. You know? They would practice in the Percaro garage, and of course... But, uh, you know, the dad, Joe Percaro, was a session percussionist. So all his gear was there, Mm. you know, and his buddy's gear. So they would practice on all that gear, you know. So it was all, like, right there. Um, I guess it was sort of a, uh, as they call it, sort of a Steely Dan tribute band. I mean, before we were even talking about Steely Dan tribute bands, that's what they were doing. And Steely Dan had not even recorded Katie Lied yet. So they're still early in their career. But Jeff was playing on Katie Lie, going to the sessions, right? Mm-hmm. And he would bring back cassettes, you know, of unfinished material and play them for the guys in the garage and they'd all jam along with it. Oh, I mean, wow. can you imagine that? In high just, school. And to think what came of them later, that they would be playing on their heroes' records is just... I mean, you said Jeff already was, but like, eventually, yeah. they're almost with a house band in, in some ways. Peach and Jeff would... Eventually, every once in a while, they he, they would rejoin the band for the, like the bigger gigs, like the proms. You know, so if they were playing a big a big date, a prom, right? Um, Jeff Percaro would play, and David Page would play. But supposedly, at some of these gigs, Jeff claims that multiple times he would bring Donald Fagan and Walter Becker by some of their gigs, and they would you know watch from the background. And he claims that Fagan at one time said to uh, Becker. Um, that, you know, maybe someday we ought to get these guys to play for us. Really? <laughs> <laughs> but that would have been a big gig, though, right? Not that? Johnny's birthday party. Yeah. yeah. So John Pierce, the bass player, through him, they meet a guy named um, Mark Williams. Mm-hmm. Mark Williams' father happens to be John Williams, the, yep. obviously one of the greatest uh, film composers of all time, who has another son. So Mark's younger brother, Joseph Williams who eventually becomes the singer of Toto when Bobby Kimball leaves. Mm-hmm. So we're talking a small two-block neighborhood where all these people are. Yeah. And there's one famed story that he talks about that he used to go up to, well, how many how many of us haven't been in Guitar Center, you know, and uh, especially you know not to go there after school time, right? <laughs> because all the, all the burnout kids will come <laughs> and they will just pick up a guitar, plug it in, and you've got like 30 high school kids all wailing at the same yep. time. Well, supposedly, you know, Luke was one of those guys who play a lot, and you know, people used to—they could tell he could really play. And one time, this, the um, the guitar center manager pulled him aside and said, "Yeah, I see you in here all, all a lot. You you can really play." You know, there's another kid that lives around here that comes in and plays, and I tell you, that guy can play too. You guys ought to get to know each other. Who's that? Eddie Van Halen. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, you he, can believe. I heard of him. Yeah. So, so he also lived in that same neighborhood. Yeah. Or at least in that area. Yeah. Oh, my God. Jeez, what was in the water? Yeah, Good exactly. Question. I want to know. I want to know that. So, eventually, he um, becomes a, you know, starts getting sniffs at these session gigs. Most of it's because Jeff Percaro and David Page are a little bit ahead of him. You know, they're starting to get gigs. They're starting to get hooked up with, like, Boz Skaggs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, 
buddies doing what buddies do. They try and get their buddies in. And mm-hmm. that, so that's how Luke started to get some sniffs. But, you know, it was kind of rocky at the beginning at times, I guess. So. Who brought him? Do you remember who brought him in initially? Was it that said, hey, I know a guy? Well, I think, no, I don't know that for sure. I know that one of his first things for really getting going was actually a touring gig. But mm. he got the gig to um, tour with Gary Wright. Right when Gary Wright hit it big with Dreamweaver and was going to go out on tour, yeah, Luke got the gig at like 18 years old. Wow, to play on that. And so they're doing stadium shows. Um, yes, Peter Frampton. You know they're warming up for these kind of right. oh things. And so yeah, so he has this one very very funny story. Um, this Frank Zappa story, which which blows me away. He, uh, I think he said he was 18, 19 at the time. So. You know, Zappa puts out an ad that he's auditioning guitar players, and that means every guitar player in L.A. is going to show up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he said he showed up, and there had to be 100 people crammed into this room. And, you know, he felt like, he said, I'm still this skinny little puny kid, and, you know, with freckle-faced or zit-faced, whatever he said. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to sort of hide in the corner so I can say I was there. Um, Frank walks in, and... um He's ready to start auditions, and he, apparently he just had amazing magnetism and charisma and stuff, and he just commands the room when he walks in. And Luke says, I swear he locked eyes with me, and he saw the fear in my eyes and pointed to me and said, you, first. Ugh. Pulls him out and puts him up in front of everybody and says, can you read? And Luke's like, yeah, I can, I can read a little bit. And he pulls out this chart, puts it in front of him, and Luke said there was so much black on this page. <laughs> He said it looked like someone wiped the rear end with it and then wrote a 21-8 time signature on it and said, play this. <laughs> and he's like, I, I fumbled through parts of it. You know? So when you say black, by the way, we should point out for in case anyone's... Ink. Just tons of notes. Notes, yes. Tons of notes yes. that he's going to have to play yeah. on the spot, not warmed up in front of people. Yeah, and a 21-8 time signature, which I don't think I've ever heard of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so he, he fumbles his way through that and Frank says, all right, forget that. I'm gonna. Here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna play a phrase to you, and you see if you can play it back to me. And he said, so he plays this phrase. It's about eight measures long, and it's just like multiple keys. It's just all over the place. He said, I try to play back. I get maybe the first three, four notes right. I kind of figured it was in the key of A. And he said, No, try it again. And so Frank goes and plays again. This time he plays for like sixteen bars, a completely different set of notes, and says, Play that. And and Luke's just, you know, stunned. And finally, Frank just says, now just pack up your gear and get the hell out of here. Oh, my God. And so Luke is just shattered. He said he, you know, cried on the way home. And he just was like... Later on, he became friends with Steve Vai. Steve mm-hmm. Vai was in Frank's band, knew Frank well. And could play all those black notes, yes. by the way. Probably. And Steve said, you know what? The reason Frank did what he did is because he didn't want to audition 100 people. He wanted to make a fool out of one person and hope that 80 of you left with him. (laughs) He said, and that's exactly what happened. Really? He said, so it was, he said, there's, there was no hard feelings or anything like that. It's just, that's the way that he called the field. Oh my God. um, Supposedly Luke became friends with the Zappa family later on and kind of relayed that story and they all had a really good (laughs) laugh over it. So probably didn't remember it was him. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, Frank crazy. was probably passed by that time, but I yeah. know his friends with Dweezil and uh, the yeah. rest of the family. But Moon. Um, Moon. <laughs> <laughs> At what point are we getting close to the point where he has like a f- first major breakthrough or a session? We're getting close. Okay. Yeah, so I, got, I got one more to tell you. That, uh, this, right. this one really caught my attention. Um, he was working for James Newton Howard, and 
Um, James Newton Howard was producing a record for Valerie Carter, and this included um, Paige and Jeff Percaro and Hungate, and so I, that, maybe that's how Luke got in on this. So anyway, so as he tells the story, this is sort of him relaying the story, that said that James Newton Howard had this, as he called him, enigmatic, which may have been his weird for weird, mm-hmm. um, black kid from Minnesota that was his assistant engineer. And he just said he was weird. He never talked or anything like that. And Luke would be in the, in the, like, um, out in the studio working up a part, playing a solo. And he said, when he, just when he would feel like he was getting going, he would see this guy rise up from behind the console. <laughs> and it was that kid. And he's just staring at him. And then he would slowly go back down and disappear. <laughs> but the guy would never say anything to Luke. Never address him, never introduce himself. Yeah. Turns out that guy was Prince. You're kidding no. me. Oh, my God. <laughs> so Prince is like, let me learn these jobs. Yes. All right, I got but it. But it's, it's almost like the moonlight feels right guy. You know? <laughs> just kind of sneaking his head above. Then well, Probably not too high above, really. He's probably maybe stood on a exactly. stool. I know. I just picture that like happening in slow motion. That's crazy. So why is he in the room? He was somebody. He engineer? was uh, James Newton Howard's assistant engineer at the time. Oh, my God. So I had no idea that Prince had any connection to the L.A. circuit. Right. Yeah, because he's like from Minneapolis, right? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Wow. Maybe he came over with the Lakers. Yeah, maybe. So the big break comes when he's still 19. um, Wow. There was, um, he'd gotten the gig to be the second guitarist, the rhythm guitarist for Boz Skaggs. Mm -hmm. They were going to tour Silk Degrees. So Silk Degrees had just hit, was doing well. He was going to go out on tour with them as the second uh, guitarist. Um, But Boz's main lead guitarist was Les Dudek. And according to the way the the stories about these sessions go is that he when they were doing the rehearsing for this even though they had all played on the record it was clear that Les really didn't bother to learn and relearn what he needed to know for the tour (laughs) didn't know the Silk Degrees tunes knew all the older stuff Um, and during one of these rehearsals that Dudek and Boz Skaggs stepped out and had words and Apparently, Dudek quit the band or was fired. I don't know which, but um, Boz came back in and said, great, now i got to find myself a lead player. Hmm. And Didn't have to look far. You know, well, Jeff Percaro speaks up and says, you got one right here. Check out this guy. So um, they decided, to, all right, we'll give him an audition right on the spot. And um, so they, they, they started uh, into a song called Jump Street, which is from that. And it's a real, like, a southern gumbo rocker kind of thing. And... Uh, when Dudek played it on the record, it was all slide guitar. Mm. And Luke's like, well, I don't play slides. So I'm just going to do what I do. And he does his thing and wails. As he, he claims when the song was over that the band stood up and gave him an ovation. Wow. And all Boz said was like, hmm, I guess I don't need to find another guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. But that was a touring gig, right? That's what... Right. That was, that was a touring gig, but... Still, I mean, when you impress Boz, right? You know, you're in you're in pretty good place. So, so do you know what chronologically? I'm sure you do because he read it. I don't know if he, he's, yeah, if Luke wrote it this way though. So, how does he convert that? I'm assuming that then begets his first studio breakthrough. At what point is he like in the sessions? When does he become? Yeah, the right. Guy? Really, kind of around then. Okay. Um, he starts getting a lot more calls because we had uh, talked about in our episode about guitar solos, great guitar solos, that mm-hmm. he played that solo. Boz called him at night to play that solo on A Clue, which is from the next album. Okay. So he's, you know, that that's kind of secured him. And, and really, at the time, Boz 
was him and Steely Dan were considered the bar that if you're good enough for them, that's all you need on your resume. Yeah, you know, right. So there were some funny things though that he told in this book. Some things that I did not understand, or not on, not that I didn't understand. I didn't know he played a lot of disco records, and mm. the way the disco thing was done, it was like an assembly line, and you would come in and you'd play on four or five tracks, and you wouldn't even know who the artist is. Really? You get your check, and that was it. And the next thing you know, you're hearing yourself on a Donna Summer record on the radio, you know, which is kind of wouldn't even let you know that you didn't, didn't even know. And maybe they didn't even know at the time, right? You know, these disco producers were just producing tracks and getting them in front of people. And yeah, so nowadays, if you were a techno artist, you would just go into the sample library and pull stuff. But they had to actually yeah. have people yeah. lay down tracks. Yeah, similar thing. He did. He played a, uh, for Diana Ross. Richard Perry, uh, producer, hired him for a Diana Ross record, and that was interesting because those were kind of sort of disco era kind of stuff. But they they would bring in a um, a Diana Ross impersonator singer mm. to sing during the recording of the basics and the demos because I don't know Diana couldn't be bothered. Right, I have yeah. no idea. But they would cut all of those songs in like four or five keys and then this impersonator would sing them in four or five keys and then Diana could hear what they sound like and decide which songs she wanted to do in which key. Oh, so that's where the word diva comes from. I guess so. I <laughs> well, guess so. You know, going back to the disco thing real quick, I wonder which came first. Like, I, Obviously, Steve is such a good guitar player. He could play whatever he wants in so many different styles. Yeah. But I wonder, like, did the disco gigs influence and bring in some of this R&B kind of feel, or did he already have that, and that's why he fit well on a disco record? You know what I mean? Because he's definitely got a couple. He's like Jekyll and Hyde because he can I know. rip of Eddie Van Halen style guitar, and then he could do the stuff like on Thriller, which we'll talk about in a little while. That's a really good question because it seems like the the people that he hung around with that we know of were more rock-sided players. Right. And that clean, plucky thing is a thing all of its own. Yeah. It's you not know? disco, to your point. No, right. but it's but there it is the R and B players that play that, and that wouldn't have been the culture he came up into, right. but yep. yet he I mean, he did it as well or better than any of those guys eventually. And in my mind, that's the, I attribute it's sound to him, even yeah. though he didn't invent it. Yeah. That's like the look of their um, And then last question, just where are we in the timeline? Is Toto a thing yet where we are? He's Not getting, yet. Okay. We're getting close. So um, did you know that um, he was actually hired to go on tour with Steely Dan for their Asia tour? Did not know that. If I knew it, I yeah. forgot it. Well, that tour never happened, as it turns oh, out. That's why so, I forgot. Story, it. yeah. Story <laughs> is they had some sort of uh, Fagan and Becker got into some dispute with horn players. What? I don't know whether it was over with the payment or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then just decided, ah, scrap the whole tour. So, oh so he's like, I was that close to touring with Steely Dan. Touring back then though yeah. wasn't the central component of your income as no an it was artist. not so touring is probably something that a guy like him is probably like i don't feel like touring anyway touring so. was something you did to catch people's attention so they'd go and buy your record and they'd play it on radio yeah, and right. so you'd get royalty money and then record sales money but the touring now was, you put out a record as a lost leader and hope to make money on touring right. it's just it's completely flipped you can see it in the pricing structure too because you could go to a concert yeah. back then for five bucks or the equivalent today of 20 say and now a concert's going to cost you a good one's yeah. going to cost you 60 80 100 bucks and the quality of the recordings i would suggest yeah. you could tell the recordings are done quick yeah right exactly. you know um should we ask people to get off our lawn at this point not yet okay well not yeah we're telling all right another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Uh, did you know this is an offshoot of that, but um, it's not Lukather specific, but I learned it through the book. Did you know, getting to Toto, you were asking about, mm-hmm. that they originally, before Bobby Kimball, they originally offered the lead vocal job to Michael McDonald? Really? But he had already taken the offer from the Doobie Brothers. So imagine oh my imagine God. the butterfly effect of that as we're looking at Yacht Rock today. In good ways and bad ways. Like, I wouldn't want to erase any of the Doobie stuff, but like, right. wouldn't that be cool to see what that song would be? And then later on... They had offered it to Richard Page before they offered it to Joe Williams. So when Bobby Kimball left, they tried to get Richard Page, but he was already committed to doing Mr. Mister. Wow. So again, it'd been an interesting ripple of that. Yeah, it would have been. I can re- I can really yeah. The Michael McDonald thing just though, that strikes me as creating a whole new Frankenstein if that would have happened. Uh, yes. You know what I mean? Cataclysmic. Like, <laughs> yes. Holy smokes. Um, one thing we, you know, since we're talking about session guys and, um, you know, that he's the ultimate session player, I, I found this story very, very interesting because they were at an event, uh, to honor Jimmy Page. And at one point, Jimmy Page, um, calls Luke over and says, you know what? You got what you got, what you can do. None of these cats out here can do. He said, you are a session guy. And he said, this is Paige talking. He said, I'm a session guy. John Paul Jones was a session guy. We know what a session guy means. Half the people out there will never know what it means. He said, you know, that we, we, we know and respect what you do. Wow. Because they'd been taking so much bad press. So when he's like, when I hear that from Jimmy Page, he said, I don't need, I don't, that's half the reason he doesn't care what the press says is because he's yeah. got, you know, the love of people that matters. Yeah. The people who really know what the hell they're talking about. Oh, explicit tech. Know that, um, yeah, they, they know just how brilliant yeah. he is. Yeah. That's really who you should care about. I mean, yeah. if you're going to care about people's opinions, which he clearly doesn't, you know, he's kind of brash and I love his, his confidence. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, those yeah. are the people you He does care enjoy about. the conflicts. That's, yeah. that's good. So that probably gets us timeline into the area of total four. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're probably in early 80s at this point. And we've talked at length about Total Four two episodes ago. I think it was. Yeah. So we don't need to rehash I don't all of that. Read, yeah. We. Um, you know, there is always that the great story about Rosanna, and uh, that's worth revisiting in that episode for sure. Yeah. Um, in the story about Africa, I think. Well, the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, it was such a great episode because I was on it that they should go <laughs> listen to it. But yeah. But that's that's the the Toto era that me growing up. So I'm fifty. So at this point, eighty two, right? Total four, mm-hmm. sub so twelve. That is that to me. That's the Toto era. This album that came a couple yeah. before with Hold the Line, right? Yeah. And then that, and then Toto. I kind of fell off my radar after that. So this is to me the reason I'm saying this. This is like the pinnacle Toto. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, I think it brings us to the pinnacle point, the pinnacle at least time area for Yacht Rock. And, you know, certainly maybe the greatest album of that era, not necessarily Yacht Rock, because I don't know that Thriller's a Yacht Rock record. No. But it's certainly probably the greatest record of that time frame. Yes. And that's where we are now. So that album was, like, life-changing for a kid who was 14 at the time. I mean, that's that's all... 
It's interesting, just real quick aside, like back then, <laughs> again, get off my lawn as, yeah. as I tell the story, but everyone, because there were so few options, media, you know, and everyone in the world was focused on the same set of stuff. Like General Hospital was everything. Right. You know, everywhere, all over right. the supermarkets, the malls, the whatever, right. lunch boxes. And then Thriller was the same thing. It's like everyone was listening to Thriller. So it, there's no equivalent nowadays, even like a Taylor Swift or something is almost like, you know, that's that's a splinter compared to what... So anyways, point being, this is the most important album of the time, probably for a lot, long time, too. Yeah, um, there's probably some that have, you know, maybe theoretically outsold it or theoretically had bigger hits, but or more hits, because we count those things so differently now with streams and downloads. It's right. all counted differently, so you can't even compare those numbers, but I don't even think there's been a, an album as big as this since. Right. At least culturally. Right. Right. Because yeah. when you add the MTV factor into it. Right. You know, and the and not just the Thriller video, but the other videos from that album. I mean, we're all groundbreaking and it was must-see TV. Yeah. You know? And so this is Quincy Jones producing his probably yeah. magnum opus. And that's the other thing is that now we're clashing or putting together, mixing together the West Coast rock probably... Um, and now suddenly the R&B is starting to come into it. I mean, Boz Skaggs had given us sort of the jazz and blue-eyed soul, but now we're getting the legit R&B mix mm-hmm. into it. And which guys from Toto played on that record? Do you know the in Toto? Yeah, in well, Toto. That was a joke. Yeah. In Toto? Well, we know Jeff Percaro did. Uh, Steve, Steve Percaro obviously did and contributed to Human Nature. Uh, Lukather, uh Bass player, I don't believe so. I think those were all Louis Johnson. Um, and then, how many songs did Lukather play on Thriller? Was he on practically every track? Maybe not every track. I'm not sure he's on Want to Be Starting Something. Um, I don't want to say too much because I'll get a flag thrown on me, but I bet you he was on all but two or three. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, the most interesting ones are the um, certainly Beat It. Mm-hmm. Um, Human Nature, and then the very first one that they recorded, the very first track recorded for Thriller um, was The Girl Is Mine. Mm. And so he gets called to that session, and now, you know, here he is. He's still young, right? He's still probably, you know, his heroes have still done way more than him, Mm -hmm. right? So he's still looking at these people with heroes, and he shows up, and... You know, Paul McCartney's there, Michael Jackson's there, Quincy Jones is there, the engineers, you know, Bruce Swedine and Ed Cherney, and um, of course, uh, Paul McCartney has Linda with him. And, mm-hmm. um, Royalty. It's just, he's he can't believe it when he walks into the session, then he's expected to sit down and play while all they're, you know, eyeballing him. <laughs> but he wrote a killer part on that, you know, and he said Quincy took him aside and told him what a great part it was that he laid down on that, and you know, Quincy uh, gave him the nickname Veets, which is Steve backwards. And he says, if Quincy gives you a nickname, you've arrived. Ooh, yes. nice. Not a very clever one, but it's a nickname. One image from those sessions, <laughs> here's an aside. Apparently during those sessions, uh, Michael Jackson, you know, we all know how weird he was. But that was when Emmanuel Lewis was starting to come up, you know, with Webster. <laughs> and Michael would carry him around like a little baby all oh my day. God. <laughs> Did it, going back to the girl's mind, didn't he come out of the booth and he walks by Paul McCartney and Paul McCartney just says, that's lovely, or something like that? Something like that, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the, the, the whole story, how he got into it, this is funny. Because he, at one of the award shows or something, 
um, Quincy told him, he said, I'm, I'm working on my next big thing and I want you to be part of it. So he had already done Off the Wall with Michael and he was starting to get the gang together that he wanted to use for Thriller and was telling Luke, yeah, I want you to be part of it. Um, but, you know, you, you never know if the call is going to come through. Well, he gets this call at like, well, he says it, they had been up partying all night. You know, imagine that. He gets this call at 8 a.m., and picks up the phone, and there's this high voice at the other end. Hello? <laughs> and he's like, he just hangs up on him. You know, bleep you, hangs right. up. Calls back again. Hey, it's me, Michael Jackson. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, yeah, well, bleep you, Michael Jackson. Hangs up on him again. <laughs> Thinking it's still a joke. Thinking it's one of his buddies playing, you yeah. know, ha- having a gag on him, right? Mm-hmm. You know, calls back again. And he says, no, really, it is Michael Jackson. So, you know, Luke in his, like we say, he loves conflict. So he decides, all right, I'm going to quiz you on some Michael Jackson trivia. <laughs> so here he is. Do you or do on, you not carry around Emmanuel Lewis? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's quizzing him. And he says, of course, he nails all of them. And, uh, you know. He would. I, yeah. I said, I still don't believe him. He says, well, if you really were Michael Jackson, you know to call it a reasonable hour. Hangs up on him again. Oh, my God. About noon, he gets a call from Quincy's office. And it's Quincy telling him. Um, Michael tried calling you this morning and he says you wouldn't talk to him. (laughs) So you better call that number back and, uh, make things right. So he calls him back and says, just apologizing profusely. Michael's like, that's okay, man. It happens to me all the time. Nobody expects me to call. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That's great. So he almost blew the gig. I mean, you don't want to piss off the the talent. Well, they they must have thought highly enough of him to call three, four times, right? Yeah, exactly. And for Michael to want to call personally, not his people, you know? Depends on how you look at that. So, yeah. What about that beat it story, though? We we told that story. That's a fascinating story because I think I've told the story a little bit in pieces, and I finally was able to kind of put it all together because he tells the story a little bit differently. In the book than he does in some interviews. And I, I don't know that it's conflicting information. I just think it, sometimes he gives more detail. So mm-hmm. um, I'm going to try to go through it as best I understand it. So when when they recorded Beat It, it was one of those, uh, is at the time where they would use multiple 24-track tapes, and then they would synchronize them uh, at mix time. Mm-hmm. So it meant each tape would have some information, some audio information on it, some parts, mm-hmm. and then there would be one of the tracks would have this time code on it. And when you fed all of those into the time code, then uh, all, all three or four or however many tape machines you had, they would all align, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, but each tape didn't necessarily have the same things on them. One might have vocals, one might have guitars, one might have some other basics. And the idea was that you would align them all up at the end. Well... They had sent off a tape that had, for whatever reason, it had probably like a rough mix down of the instrumental, Michael Jackson's lead vocal for guidance, so you would know where you are in the song. Mm -hmm. And they sent, and then it would, of course, have a a track of time code on it. They sent that off to Eddie Van Halen to get the um, guitar solo put on. Now, the, the instrumental track that's on there is the demo at the time. It's just a demo thing. And... Um, Eddie Van Halen, as they said, didn't want to solo over the section that they gave him to, which was really a one chord thing. It was just that da 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 over and over and over again. Which leads into the yeah. eventual solo. But he That's wanted more chord movement underneath him yeah. so he could do something more interesting.
So he had his engineer, Don Landy, cut the tape up so he could work over the section that he wanted to. He had to grab a section of the verse and put it where the guitar solo would be so that he could play over the verse chords, mm -hmm. right? Well, as soon as you cut a tape that has time code on it, the time code's no longer any good. Right. So what they've got on this tape, Quincy you know, freaks out and calls uh, Luke. I don't know why this became Luke's problem, but, you know, maybe he must have become some sort of, uh, you know, handyman sidekick or whatever. Mm -hmm. He said, you got you to gotta help me, man. You got to fix this. You got to <laughs> fix this. He said that um, the problem is on that tape, I have an original Eddie Van Halen solo, first generation, meaning it had not been duplicated to another tape, and first generation Michael Lee vocal. Again, why that's on that tape I don't know but he's like I can't lose those right. you have to find some way to make this work so the idea was they had to reconstruct then the demo around that so they went into the studio and nothing on this tape that was keeper other than the vocal and the guitar solo and Jeff Perkar went into the booth put the headphones on they cranked everything up really loud and he could hear through some of the um, headphone bleed from Michael's vocal onto the tape, he could kind of hear what was going on in the demo, right? Mm -hmm. And so he would go in there and follow along clicking his sticks to create a click track. Oh, my God. Apparently he nailed that, like, in the second take. Then he went in back, and with his click track now in place, he went and played the whole drum part against that. First take. Oh. So now they finally have something to work with. They have a legit drum track the guitar solo, and the lead vocal. So then Luke goes and builds out all of the guitar parts. He had that, that thing. That was his invention. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yes. And he apparently um, cranked out his um, Marshall stacks and uh, quadruple tracked it and just it was huge. So he said, I'll play the bass on this one too. Give me a bass. Plays the bass on it. They send that back to um, Quincy. He loves it, but he says it's just way too heavy. He said, I got to get this on R&B and pop radio, too. He said, so go back and cut it with your small Fender Deluxe or whatever it was. He Combo said, it, Yeah, and only double track it. Hmm. And so that's what you ultimately end up ah. hearing. So Luke's playing the bass. He's playing the guitar, that main guitar part. Later on, they add some of the other rhythm parts. But so they had to build all of this thing, sort of backward engineer it from Eddie's solo and Michael's lead vocal yeah i was gonna say somewhere eddie van halen's laughing his ass off because oh, yeah. he rewrote the tune just good thing they're friends yeah hey, but you know what that was brilliant though because his lead over that chord progression just oh, yeah. makes that song oh. perfect oh yeah the funny thing is like luke says everybody thinks the whole song is eddie he yeah. said i'm playing all the parts except for the solo but everyone says oh yeah that's eddie and michael here's how shameful i am i i knew i wondered back then because i was starting to become a musician trying to and it was and so you knew eddie van halen did the lead and i would ask you know is he playing all the guitars on that and somebody in the know said no it's he only does the solo some other guy does the rest some other guy <laughs> well I, I guess at the award show when they uh, got an award for that tune that um quincy came up and michael and eddie came up too and got the awards and um i think I might have to throw a flag on me in this one i'll have to recheck the book i thought that it was that page and Lukather were the ones giving the award. Oh, my God. So, you know, they're, they're the ones opening the envelope and giving the award. And so they call them up, and there's Luke is standing literally right there behind them. 
And <laughs> here's uh, Quincy giving all the accolades to Eddie and Michael, and Luke's like right there behind him. Oh, so kind of he felt the little bone down that. Yeah. What about um, you brought up Human Nature? Yeah, and we talked about that his track on that in the past and how how that came to be. What was the story there? Yeah, the original demo of that was Steve Porcaro and his synths and his drum machine, and most of that stays on the record. And he wrote the song. He wrote the song with uh, another lyricist. Um, the thing about that was that the song was a bit static sounding to Quincy's ear. You know, he wanted to get everything that could be played on multiple uh, format radios. So in this case, it, he wanted to get a little more R&B into it, and it just wasn't there with all the stuff that was arpeggiators and sequences and drum machine stuff. It didn't have mm-hmm. any human feel. So he's, you know, Luke, he says, he gets, he gets real close to me, he says, Luke, Veets, man, you got to make it funky for me. You got to make it funky. <laughs> so Luke came up with that part and um, had the idea of, well, it, it still needs a little more life, so I'm going to go back in and double track or triple track the thing. And he had to sort of intentionally play it close but slight variations so that it wouldn't feel the same all the way through to give it a lot more human life to it. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it, it came out great. Supposedly, Steve Picaro didn't like it much at first, but, you know, he's obviously glued to his original right, version, exactly. you know? But I guess when the checks started rolling in, he said, yeah, I kind of like it. Now. <laughs> so. Yeah, that guitar. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Yeah, exactly. It's beyond one of the most iconic albums, literally, of all time. I mean, that's okay. And he probably didn't know it at the time, right? It's probably, he heard it after he'd recorded it. This album's not out. It hasn't done anything. Right, Nobody yeah, knows exactly. what it's going to be. Yeah. You know, he's like, eh, it's all right. Yeah, whatever. Little did they yeah. know, like, almost every song in that record would be released as a single, including yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So those are some amazing stories, that whole so, thriller thing. There's a lot of stuff that he played on. That he never really got credit for. I mean, there's credits, there's album credits, and we know there's session guy stuff, mm-hmm. but there's stuff where he's playing larger profile stuff that you don't associate with the genre or a yacht rock that he played on that it's kind of interesting. Examples? Well, um, did you know that he played on Don Henley's um, Can't Stand Still album? No, had yeah. no idea. So that album was produced by uh, Danny Korchmar and uh, Greg Ladanya. Greg Ladanya was uh, the guy that mixed Toto 4, so okay. that was mm-hmm. sort of the relationship. Um, Dirty Laundry, the whole out solo oh, is yeah. him. Joe Walsh plays the solo in the middle. That's weird yeah. that they would have a different guy do it. And that's solo. what Luke thought, too. He said, but Joe Walsh was real, like, you know, encouraging on him and really, you know, complimentary of it, what he did. I got to go listen to that. Maybe you could play a little of that outro lead here. Because I remember that was my favorite part of the song. Yeah. The demo was done with that Lindrum machine, and then Jeff Percaro played the live drums over the top of it. So hmm. it's kind cool. of an interesting one that yeah. I, I don't really associate with him. Nope. Um, and then that the uh, that main keyboard sound is like a it's a Farfisa organ, but somehow they managed to sync it up with a bunch of synths and layered this Farfisa organ with some synths. And that was like Steve Percaro magic. You know, he mm-hmm. had all the technical ability to do all that stuff. So I still don't understand how they got the organ to sync with that stuff. But hmm. Hmm. here's another one then. Um, I, find, I find this one kind of funny. This is kind of, you, you asked the question in one of our episodes about uh, um, Good David Foster or evil David Foster? <laughs> yeah. he, I tell you, that dude could be cutthroat, man. Um, really? Yeah, because so I don't. I don't feel bad about calling him evil. No, though. no. Um, so David Foster's hired to produce uh, for the Tubes. 
Did mm. you know, can you imagine David Foster producing the Tubes? I can't it, even hear it. You know, he did it, two I, albums, so I mean, I, I don't really think of that association either. No, but he did the backward uh, or the completion backward principle, 1981. Lukather, David Foster, and Fee Waybill co-wrote "Talk to You Later," huh. which was their first big radio, yep. hit, right? You mm-hmm. know. The rest of the band wasn't so nuts about it. Prairie Prince, the drummer, he was all in. He, he enjoyed working with the guys and all that stuff. Even though he wasn't a writer, he was all in. Played the drums, uh, but the rest of the band didn't really want to be a part of it. So Luke plays all the guitar parts, even plays the bass part, and it becomes their first big radio hit. So it's really, it's huh. Toto with Fee Waybill and Prairie Prince. Crazy. Well, then the um, the label, of course, you know, that, that's a big hit, so the label wants the do it again. Bring bringing the team back together for the next one. So they're asked to work on the next record, which is called Outside Inside 1983. And again, Lukather, Foster get together and they write a song with Fee Waybill and Prairie Prince. And none of the other guys want to play on this one either because they felt like they were frozen out. Well, mm-hmm. that was She's a Beauty. I was going to say, it's got to be the hit. <laughs> it is the hit. I think that might even be Steve Picaro on keys on that one, too. A lot of total elements. And yeah. Bobby Kimball sings back up on it. Really? You know? I yeah. love that tune. Not and Yachty, but... Oh, now that, that you tune. know that, check out the guitar solo in that one. Oh. All right. uh, I got one last one. Wow. One last one that is you would um, not believe was him. So Toto was asked at one time to contribute a song to Footloose. Mm. And they passed on it at the time because they also had an offer to score the movie Dune. Which oh, wasn't really a good that. movie, I guess. But No, but I could see how their music would apply But Lynch, to that. David Lynch was, you know, they, they really respected him and he was a weird-minded guy and they thought it'd be cool to work with him. So they chose to do Dune and decided not to do Footloose, which it worked out okay for them. So, um, But then, a few years later, Top Gun comes along. And they're asked to contribute a song to Top Gun. And originally they were asked to com- uh, send a couple of ballads. They were looking for a love ballad at the time. And I guess um, I'll Be Over You was one of them that they submitted. Um, uh, none of them were really selected. And the, um, but the movie company came back and said, well, Giorgio Moroder does have a song that he'd like you guys to play on. You know, So even though it's not going to be one of your compositions. And they, they're like, eh, we don't really want to do that. But reluctantly they said, all right, we'll, we'll do it. So... They, they record the uh, tracks for this, send it off, and Joe Williams is singing lead vocal on it. Studio said, you know what? I think what we're going to do is just use Joe's lead vocal and recut all the other parts with studio musicians. Like, <laughs> we are studio musicians. We're the A-grade studio musicians. Right. And they said, you know what? Never mind. You don't forget it. We don't, want, we don't yeah. want to be part of it. Well, later they hear their arrangement pretty much their arrangement, exactly as they had it, though replayed by other guys, uh-huh. with Kenny Loggins singing on it. Highway to the Danger Zone, baby. I could see yeah. that being Toto. Yeah. Yeah. God, why would they do that, though? I don't know. I don't know. So I had one last quick story, because you'd specifically asked about this one, and we'd, uh, I said I'd look it up. Oh, yeah. So uh, Luke is playing along with a group of guys called The Section, and they were another sort of self-contained... Um, session musicians group this is danny korchmar lee sklar russ kunkel craig george and they were more in the jackson brown circuit but they were you know high-end guys too so they were doing a session 
And the artists they were working for, as they were ready, they were getting ready to go and leave apparently for dinner. They were done for the night and they were going to go and hang out at Korchmar's house, have dinner, yada, yada. Well, the artist said, um, I got one more tune. I need you to just, can you blaze a solo down on this one? And they're practically out the door. Mm-hmm. Looks like, all right. He said he's feeling his oats at this time, you know? And he's yeah. like, I'll tell you what, you give me, tell me how many bars it is. Guy says, eight bars. I said, okay, what key is it in? D. All right, give me two bar um, count in. And you get what you get. One take. And they're uh, not going to play it for him first. Right. He says, I don't want to hear it first. <laughs> <laughs> so there he goes. They give him two bar. They count him in. He blazes off this solo. And um, the artist, who happened to be David Crosby. Oh, my God. Says, all right. That's perfect. Get out of here. Go eat your damn dinner. <laughs> <laughs> what tune was it? Uh, I don't know because I looked up the album. And there's two songs that Luke there's credited on, and neither one has really a solo. So maybe it didn't get used in the wow. final. I don't know. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, yeah. Anyway, lightning round time? Yes, it was lightning round time. So I, I guess uh, you are recommending, though, the gospel according to Luke quite highly, huh? I am. And you know what? I will say that I barely touched on it. You know, yeah. um, there's... There's so many things in there. I kind of just stuck with the stuff that is loose, loosely related to Yacht Rock. Um, but it's it's there's so much that I wasn't going to cover because I, I'm not going to sit here and read the book. you got to go out and get the book. Yeah. The book is great. And I'm told by the people that have bought the Audible version with Luke reading it himself and telling it in his own words, I guess, is just... You know, can't miss listening. You know, I read the book, but other people enjoyed listening to it. But yes, it is imagine. a must read if you're into this stuff. Cool. Good. Well, good recap. I am going to pour my fifth glass of wine and we'll get on to the lightning mm. round. Pass Shall the cheese. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so lightning round. Yep. Um, do you want me to go first? You're going to ask me if something floats my boat? Yes. So okay. does it float your boat? Mm. Um, I did not do lightning round to be uh, topic specific today. So this is going to Well, I be... was going to, and then I figured, well, if I, no matter what I did, I was probably going to land on a Luke tune, right? right so exactly. whatever. Right, exactly. All right, so I got to ask you if this floats your boat, because I always hear it in the standard mixes or on the regular channels, but um, curious where you come down on Lonely Boy by Andrew Gold. That's usually a, a no for me. It, I, I think I associate him more with the earlier period of Linda Ronstadt's work, kind of her pre-yacht period. You know, he was like the almost band leader for her. He was the yeah. core to her band. And um, it she's feels, on that tune, by the way. She, is she? She does background vocals. This is 1977. Yeah. Yep. It just feels a little bit more in the West Coast AOR rock area. I put it in the same area, like I said, the early 
Ronstadt stuff or Jackson Brown. I put it there, which is just slightly off the side to me. Yeah. I always kept it on the boat because I just figured, well, I'm used to hearing it that way. So Okay. But, yeah, um, I know that's one that is thrown in The reason in I brought there. it up is because now I, mean, I don't I listen to it and I don't feel like it fits. But they you got to listen to the guitar solo in that tune because it just absolutely rips. But last thing on Andrew Gold is I'm kind of looking into more of his catalog. Um, did you know he wrote and recorded that song "Thank You for Being a Friend," which is the theme song to the Golden Girls? No. Yes, that, that's his version. That, uh, no, that's not his version. Okay, but he originally wrote... he yes, oh. he wrote and recorded. It. You should check it out. So, wow, thank uh, you for being a friend and telling me. Yes, I wanted to spring that on you because we may do a, a little thing on on that, like an as seen on TV kind of yes, thing. Yes, yeah, right. very nice. All right, so two no's on that. Yeah, yeah. I'm a soft no though. Anyways, okay. Um, does it float your boat? This is um, actually a year outside the generally considered um, proper years for Yacht Rock. This is, it's a Jay Graydon production. Uh, the song is written by Jay Graydon, David Foster, and Randy Goodrum. So, I mean, a lot of cred there in terms of Yachty stuff. But does the fact that it's just getting a little later into the 80s not hold up as Yacht for you? And that is DeBarge, Who's Holding Donna Now? I can't believe that personnel's on that song. Yeah, almost the entire first side of the record is Jay Graydon production. Really? Yeah. Um, that's one of those songs where just where I put it mentally in my like my history books. It doesn't feel like it fits the era. A um, little too R and B for me. So I am saying I love the song. I used to got. I used to think about this girl, and I would play that song. Anyways, mm. um, no, uh, that is not. That's a no for me. Yeah, I think it's a no for me. And it's, it's, I hear, I start hearing later 80s sounds in there. Somebody yes. commented on our Facebook page something somewhere along the line, or it was in the email that was sent uh, to us, um, where he was making the distinction that once you start to hear the uh, Yamaha DX7, which is a sound I can't really describe, you know it if you know it, mm-hmm. as soon as you start hearing that, it stops sounding like yacht, and I couldn't agree more with yeah. that. And this is where that era starts to happen. So I agree. With By the way, we do encourage, uh, I don't even want to call it fan mail, just any kind of mail. Tell us what you want to hear, uh, what you thought, what you like, where you disagree, and you can yeah. find us. You can find our email address, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff at uh, yachtrockpodcast.com. Yeah, and if there's an album or an artist you want us to break down, you yep. know. Lay it on us. All right, so let's move on to Buried Treasure. Buried Treasure. Have you one? I am going to hit you in a very uh, uncomfortable place. Oh, it's got to be the groin. No. Oh. It's, it's, uh, it revolves around synth bass. <laughs> I've noticed you didn't put it, does it float your boat? Cause no, I didn't know. know the answer to that. But, man, this is a killer song. 1982, this was the follow-up to... Um, Turn Your Love Around from the mm. same album. So they put uh, two new singles on that George Benson collection. Uh, Neil Steubenhouse on bass, Greg Fillingains, Jerry Hay, Michael O'Marsh, and Steve Lukather, there, blah, blah, blah. But this was uh, also a big hit. Never Give Up on a Good Thing. Well, so, but it's also got real bass. It does. So there, yeah. You know, if you're doubling synth bass, 
where I, what gets me is when it's intentionally synth sounding. You know that happened. It got real popular in the eighties. Yeah, like on some of the Lionel Richie stuff. It's like that just doesn't feel like it fits. But that that's a great find in a, a great sound. Every bass player I know wants to cut off the left hand of every keyboard player he knows. I I am in that boat. <laughs> Speaking of boats, floating your boat. Yes, yes, exactly. All right, I have uh, so I'm going to go for my buried treasures to Orleans. Mm. Obviously, they're. Big hit being Dance With Me, right? Yeah. And, of course, uh, what's the other one? Still the one. Still the one, yep. Maybe this isn't as buried as I think it is, but I don't hear this very often. And this is, I think, the most yachty of any of those tunes, and it's called Love Takes Time. Wow, I, yeah, I did. I totally forgot about them, but you're right. As soon as I heard that chorus, like, it's the chorus. Bam. Yep, yeah. that reminded me. I was sitting listening to the song on some radio station, mm. and it's like, oh my god, yes, yeah, this. So, anyways, unburied it has become. Mm-mm. Good call. All right, uh, so I will. You want to do off? The, uh, let me do off the map since you were Mister Storyteller. Today. Okay, yeah. My little story is uh, about Poco, Ooh. and you uh, tipped me off kind of to their Indian Summer album, right? A few months ago now and um, it's not yachty nope it's more if it happened 20 years later it would be in that alt country genre mm-hmm. which was like you know jayhawks and early wilco right adam stuff um and as a matter of fact you said you like wild feathers this right. kind of sounds like That's proto wild feathers right. it totally does at the end of the album there's a song that says comes out um there's a song that's called Go On and Dance, and it sounds just like the rest of the record, but it morphs directly into this next song, which is The Buried Treasure, or Off the Map, or Is It Floating Your Boat? It's called... <laughs> check out how it goes in t- for, out of the end of uh, Go On and Dance and into the beginning of Never Gonna Stop. All of a sudden, it gets funky. Yeah. The horns kick in. It sounds like average white band. All to- of a sudden, yeah. There you go. Definitely. And what's cool that it morphs without taking a break. It morphs into the next song, which is when the dance is over. You're right. Which is more rocky, but uh, you know, in terms of like the straightforward rock, like the rest of the album. But what I find so fascinating, this is the last album that um, that uh, Timothy B. Schmidt is on before the Eagles snatch him up. And so mm-hmm. the next record is the Poco record that has Crazy Love and right. Heart of the Night. That's the Boriati record. For sure. The first song that out of that one feels like it's the continuation of this sound, which is a little more funky and mm-hmm. whatever. So mm-hmm. very fascinating little number there. All right. Well, I guess we got one more off the map suggestion. And this isn't entirely off the map, but it is a year late. It's in 1985. And one thing that's typically not allowed on the boat, I know, are large, big, bombastic ballads. Right. And this may be the most big, bombastic ballad of them all. But it does have Luke on solo, and it does have Kenny Loggins on vocals. And it is from the 1985 Vox Humana album, and this was a fairly big hit from him called Forever. (laughs) 
so heroic. It is. That's the sound. Whenever you hear me say it's starting to sound like that mid-80s rock sound, that's, that's the sound it. I'm talking about. Yeah, that's What it. year? 85. Exactly. Right in the right middle. Right in the middle. Yep. Oh, my God. Oh, very good. Well, all right. Well, we've run a little long today, so. We, we did. Um, but remember, just one final reminder that uh, February 19th has come and gone so if you're looking for entertainment the Muppets are Muppets. out on Disney Plus mm-hmm. uh, if you're looking for musical entertainment the page 99 record is out Ahoy Polloi